is the Beaver Tales Podcast with Josh Wharton, who has covered Oregon State Athletics since 2013. Well, hi again, everybody, to another edition of the Beaver Tales Podcast, where I'm going to talk with a former Beaver athlete to get their look at what happened since they left Oregon State and their career at OSU and the championship they won. After all, it is Michael Gretler today. We've gone through a couple different players from the 2018 Beaver baseball team. We've gone to the left fielder and Kyle Novak, the shortstop in Caden Grenier, and now to the hot corner in Michael Gretler. Before I tell you about his conversation and what he did at Oregon State to bring you back up to speed on his career, I want to mention Kingdom Home, an organization started by a fellow former Beaver baseball player like Michael Gretler. It was Matt Boyd who played a few years ago who now organizes, while he's also playing in Major League Baseball, he and his wife Ashley organized Kingdom Home, which provides a home for young people at risk of entering child sex slavery located in Uganda. They meet each child's holistic needs, their material, emotional, educational, spiritual needs as well. And their home not only helps restore the children, but also protects them and dramatically reduces the likelihood that they would enter or re-enter the sex trade or exploitative labor. You can check out more about Kingdom Home at their website, kingdomhome.org, and see how you can sponsor a child or donate to their cause and help out some people in need in Uganda and some awesome former beavers in both Matt and Ashley Boyd. As for Michael Gretler, the Bonnie Lake Washington native was a 2018 Pac-12 All-Defensive Team member, two-time honorable mention All-Pac-12 team. That's especially good since there's no second team All-Pac-12. There's just an All-Pac-12 team, and then the other people that were close make honorable mention. So that's pretty good for Michael Gretler, who is a 300 hitter, two seasons, 301 and then 305 is junior and senior years. He was actually drafted into the major leagues three times, once out of high school in the 39th round by the Boston Red Sox. He turned that opportunity down to play at Oregon State. So he spent the three years at Oregon State and then again was drafted in the 39th round, this time by the Pittsburgh Pirates. He turned them down also and stayed for his senior season in 2018. So he could have left for the pros, stayed for one more year, won a national championship, and then was drafted in the 10th round. So by staying one more season, he drastically improved his draft stock and went on to the Pittsburgh Pirates organization, where he played for two seasons in the minor leagues in Morgantown, West Virginia, Bradenton, Florida, and Greensboro, North Carolina, where the three stops he made in the minor league affiliates of the Pirates. He's actually moved on and retired from baseball. He now lives in Seattle and has a job there, which he'll explain during our conversation, as well as all the topics of the 2018 College World Series, his memories of Pat Casey, and more. His audio does get a little choppy halfway through the conversation for about two answers, but he was kind enough to switch to his computer and get some better audio. You won't hear the part where I ask him to do that because I edited it out. But if you notice the quality getting just a little choppy, after about 60 seconds, it'll get a lot better. And he was nice enough to switch, so I appreciate that. There's also a moment about 30 minutes into the conversation where I share my screen on the Zoom call so we can watch a play together from the College World Series and hear him narrate it and explain what was happening during Game 3 in Omaha, the final game of the season, when he scored the run to get Oregon State to a 5-0 lead. So you won't see the video, but you can hear him talking about that play. Here is Oregon State's third baseman joining the Beaver Tales podcast from West Seattle. It's Michael Gretler. Another championship edition of the Beaver Tales podcast is Michael Gretler joins me. Michael, how are you doing and how's life up in Seattle these last couple weeks? 
It's good. It's good. Uh, thanks for having me on, Josh. You know, it's definitely an interesting time for everyone with, uh, you know, kind of what's been going on with the coronavirus the last couple months. Um, you know, Seattle was kind of a hot spot, so it's pretty pretty locked down around here. Uh, no restaurants, but uh, me and my girlfriend are hunkered down in our apartment doing as much work from home as we can. So things are things are good. Usually I get to kind of a chronological look at players' careers and finish with what does life look like these days. But I want to start with more of the today look and, and what your life has looked like um, the last few months because you've made a pretty big decision within the last uh, you know six months or so where you are no longer a baseball player. That's not your profession. That's not your career. You're no longer playing pro baseball in the Pirates organization, and you decided – I'm, I'm going to move on and I'm going to be an adult and get a job and all that. So tell me a little bit about how that decision came about and how difficult it was to realize this baseball thing isn't going to last forever and what that led to. Yeah, you know, it's uh, it was definitely a tough decision, but it's something I'd been kind of thinking about, you know, even dating back to after my junior year of college, you know, after I was drafted um, and had the opportunity by the Pirates as well to go play professionally after my junior year. You know, obviously knowing that there was more factors that played into it at that time, you know, such as the education and, and teammates and knowing that we had a really good team going into 2018. But for me, it's always been kind of about I enjoyed baseball my whole life. I enjoyed the team atmosphere of it. And that's something that the coaches always talk about at Oregon State, you know, Case and Bales and Jenks and Yeski when I was there that when you go on from college baseball to professional baseball, it becomes a business. And while I met some great guys in the Pirates uh, organization, ultimately I just felt like for me it was time to, you know, move on from from baseball. And whether that be because minor league baseball might be a little more individual than college, and and I did miss that, you know, team environment and team atmosphere where everyone was competing for the same goal. But at the end of the day, it was just kind of, you know, it was my decision, obviously, and and I felt like it was time to, like you said, get that big boy job and, and kind of take things, uh, you know, that begin, begin a new career, you know, outside of baseball. You did have the rest of the 2018 season. Once the college season ended, you played some pro ball and then spent, you know, the next season basically in the Pirates organization, mostly on the Eastern side of America. Although it did come to an end, what were some highlights? What were some moments that you did enjoy and uh, what professional baseball was like for about a year and a half, two seasons? Yeah, yeah. It was a short season and then a full, uh, full season. Um, so, you know, it was really great. Um, the Pirates are a great organization. Um, they, they gave, they really put the players first, whereas, you know, I don't, I don't know if every other organization does that, you know, they, they really take care of us from a living standpoint and nutrition standpoint. And, and I think the, the, the best part for me was just getting to meet guys from, you know, all different walks of life. You obviously have players from other countries. They may speak English. It might be broken English. It might be their second language, but that was really cool to see. Those guys are, they're so talented. They might not have the understanding or the depth and knowledge that some of the college players have at the same levels in the minor leagues, but it's just really cool to see them play the game at such a high level, even without that knowledge. It's just a testament to skills and the coaches that they have down there. And it's just, it's just a part of their culture. And that was really cool to see as well as many guys from other colleges, a couple of my, the closest guys I, I got to hang out with Connor Kaiser from Vanderbilt, Grant Cook from Arkansas, Brett Kinneman from NC state, Zach Cohen from Duke. There, there's just tons of guys that you meet along the way that it's really fun to kind of share your experience in college and, and compare it to how theirs was and, 
in a lot of the cases actually playing against guys like Grant on the College World Series and then Connor Vanderbilt when they came and played us in the Super Regional uh, in 2017. So for me, that was the best part. What sort of conversations did you have with Grant when you're in the, in the minor leagues? How much did you how much did he want to talk about it? Did you razz him or, or what conversations came up about 2018? Yeah, so it was kind of funny because, you know, obviously with the weather there in Omaha, it got delayed a little bit. The College World Series was delayed. So we were actually, we flew into Pittsburgh to sign our professional contracts on the same day. And so they'd given us each other's phone number to kind of like, hey, you know, what's up? You want to, and we talked a little bit during the games uh, in the College World Series, you know, and just kind of introduce ourselves and whatnot, nothing too crazy. But when we were in Pittsburgh for those two days while we were signing, we, you know, went to breakfast kind of was hanging out and I didn't say a word about it you know I was, I was never that guy to brag about it or put it in his face or whatever but sat down at breakfast first day that we were in Pittsburgh and he was just like dude we got to talk about it like he brought it up and was just you know threw it on the table and was just like that was unbelievable and and so it was really fun to kind of hear his side of the story from you know the opposing locker room and whatnot but I mean that was just I think that's an all-time series you know I, I, I people keep telling me that they have been watching on their DVR the last you know month or so with no sports on so it was just it was just a really great series and, and fun to be able to share that experience with him as we were both moving on from college into the professional ranks. How did he explain the aftermath of game two the foul ball Arkansas nearly winning the national championship and how the Arkansas players handled their teammates mistake of dropping the foul ball when they could have won? Yeah, so this this was actually the best part. I'm glad you asked that because I can speak for us in the locker room. After that second game where the missed fly ball and Trevor hitting the home run, I don't think there was any doubt in any of our minds after Trevor hit that home run that we were going to win game three the next day. And I told Grant that at breakfast. I was like, man, like as soon as Trevor hit that home run, like we all knew the series was over. He's like, really? Cause like we got back in the locker room and like, we, our spirits were high. Like we were confident. We we're like, ah, whatever. Like it's one game. Like, you know, we basically beat them every inning up until that ninth inning. So I thought that was really fun to hear because it was, we almost both had the same mindset after having been on complete opposite ends of the spectrum when it came to that play. That was not the answer I was expecting to hear. But at the same time, I think that, you know, it really shows how great of a team they had, the confidence they had in each other, which, you know, that's what it takes to get to that point in the season. That's interesting. Multiple guys I've talked to, Kyle Novak said, we were going to win. There was no doubt in my mind. Caden Grenier said the same thing. There there was no worries. The parent said, good luck. And he was like, we don't need it because we're going to win. Which is interesting that your teammate in the minor league said, no, we we still felt confident because I heard a a different story. So I talked to an Arkansas reporter who was in the Arkansas Uh locker room after game two, and he shared his perspective on what their emotions were like. And he was saying they looked dejected, defeated. Guys were taking their meals and walking into the shower so they wouldn't have to talk to the reporters and just sitting down in the shower. Now, maybe there was a variation. You know, maybe some guys are doing that and other guys are more confident. So maybe that's where it lies. Right. But I, I wonder about where it was on the spectrum because, I mean, your perspective and the story you heard was actually that there was at least some confidence. Yeah, that was my initial reaction when Grant told me that because like I like you and me had just said, there was no doubt from the Oregon State team we were gonna lose. I mean it was over. As soon as Turner hit that home run, it's like that's the game. They don't even we don't even need to play game three. So when Grant told me that I was really kinda like, Are you are you serious? Like that's the complete opposite of 
what I would have expected. I would have expected it to be more like you just mentioned the reporter saying. So, right. yeah, I mean, who knows? You know, only they, the people in that locker room know what the feeling was like. Right. Maybe a mixed bag. That's all right. Um, we'll come back to the College World Series and run through a lot of the memories of Game 2 and Game 3. But let's come back a little bit to your career. When you decided to, to move on from professional baseball, was it difficult for you to officially make that statement of, you know, baseball is such a big part of your life throughout high school, through four years at Oregon State and professionally, that can take a big part of your identity of who you are. People ask, hey, what do you do, Michael? What, what's your passions? And I'm sure baseball would almost always come up in conversations like that. So when you finally have to wrestle with something else is going to be my thing, my you know, how I spend my 24 hours, what I think about during the day, what I talk about with people. Was it difficult for you to transition away from baseball the last few months that you've been working in the, in the corporate field? Yeah, you know, it, it definitely is. I think when you play baseball at such a high level, like in, and, and this is it true of any sport, you know, I think a lot of athletes face this when they're done, when their playing career is over. Um, but when you, when you play your sport at such a high level, like you just said, it consumes you, right? You don't have time for an internship. You don't have time for this or that that other people may have who are just going to school. And so it is totally different. You don't have to work out if you don't want to because like it doesn't relate to your your job. It's not like you need to take care of your body because you hurt your knee and you can't do your job or whatever. So, I mean, there's things like that that are just different than how you're you're, you're used to thinking, right? But as for everything else you know I had such a great time in college and, and for me personally I always took school very seriously knowing that having great people in my life who are older coaches and mentors it's like at some point your playing career is going to be over whether you play 25 years in the major leagues or if you play two years of minor league baseball or if you just play after college at some point it's going to end and you're going to have tons of time afterwards to go into the corporate world so I kind of had already been thinking about that for quite some time which I think made the transition for me at least a little bit easier I don't know if that answers your question specifically but at the same time you, you learn so much about yourself and about the tasks throughout the day that might be in the corporate world and how it can draw upon your past experiences from baseball or from your sport and and there are a lot of uh, similarities that I think um, is why you see so many athletes go on and have successful business careers. It seems like you've made that transition well. So tell me a little bit about what that job is. How did you get hired? And what does a day in the life of Michael Gretler look like now? Yeah, so uh, the, I'm a uh, pharmaceutical sales rep for a company, AbbVie, uh, selling a hepatitis C drug, which is uh, you know, a pretty unique disease state. And it's something that I had always kind of thought about doing the, the med device or the pharmaceutical sales. I've known people that have been in that industry for a long time, and they said it's very rewarding. It's tough work. It's challenging. And for me, it's like, I think if you talk to a lot of athletes, it's the, the normal eight to five desk job probably isn't the first thing that comes to mind for people. So I knew through some experiences that I wanted to be kind of on the sales side of things in the field, you know, making connections with people. And just happened to get the opportunity to interview for, for this company. And, uh, you know, that was back in January, I believe. So it's only been a couple months. Like I said, with the coronavirus, it's definitely kind of thrown a loop into things. But, you know, it's really exciting to see how, how great of a company it is. And the people that are on our team and in our district have been so helpful to me. And I can already feel that family environment that I really, really enjoyed about 
baseball, especially school like Oregon State. So it's fun to see that uh, in the corporate world as well. Last question before we go to your time at Oregon State. Have you ever read a short story or book by the American author Ambrose Bierce? I have not. Okay. I'm guessing he's not the one your name, your middle name is after. <laughs> right. No. I'll have, what do you know the name of it? Uh, well, he's a, he's a, you know, Civil War era author. And I, when I okay. saw your middle name, I wondered, is, is Michael's middle name come from Ambrose Beers? Because I've never seen anyone okay. else named Ambrose, but I'm guessing it's more yeah. of a family name. Yeah. So that was my, I believe it's my great grandpa's name on my dad's side of the family. Okay. So that's where that comes from. But yeah, I just looked him up. I'll have to check out some of his books. That's, uh, that's funny. It is kind of a name that you don't hear a lot. I, I uh, you know, I get that a lot. Any chances your firstborn son's going to be named Ambrose Gretler? Probably not. Probably not. <laughs> I don't blame you. <laughs> so it's a better middle name than it is a first name these days. Sure. <laughs> All right. Going back to your, when you first arrived at Oregon City, you came out of Bonnie Lake High School. What was it like being recruited by Pat Casey or whatever other coaches were your more initial contacts? What was that recruitment process like? Uh, it was really exciting. You know, uh, I remember being in sixth and seventh grade, kind of the time that I really had decided I wanted and, and set my mind to playing college baseball were the years that obviously Oregon State won the back-to-back -back national championships and kind of put baseball in the Pacific Northwest on the map. So when uh, I got invited down, excuse me, to an infield camp my sophomore year of high school during the winter, um, Marty Lee was still the infield coach there. And, you know, the, the summer coach that I was playing for at the time had a great relationship with uh, Marty and Bales and Case, Jim Stewart out of Ch with Chafee up in Seattle, uh, Michael Conforto, Dylan Davis, Max Inkelbrett had all played on the team uh, as well in their time in high school and then made the transition to Oregon State. So it all kind of just came together. You know, they were the first school to offer me, the, the only school that I'd kind of set my mind to. So as soon as after that infield camp that I got an offer and had the chance to come down and go on a tour, I knew that, you know, that was where I wanted to go. In terms of Pat Casey's coaching philosophy, it seems like, at least for some guys, he can, he can be the harsh you know, get in your face, I, you need to play better, that sort of guy. And maybe he coaches players differently depending on what each guy needs. The main story I'm thinking of is Kyle Novak and, and all the harsh love he would give Kyle and the, the names and the, you know, just how difficult he was on Kyle, which ultimately turned out to be exactly what Kyle needed for him to, to really get after him. Did you see Pat coaching players in a similar way, did he, did he treat everyone like Kyle and he just put out a blanket coaching style or did he have a different strategy for each guy on the roster and some guys he'd be a lot easier on or whatever the case may be? Yeah, you're exactly right. I think that's a common theme that you see amongst a lot of great coaches and leaders throughout sports and you know life is that they are so good at knowing a person, figuring out that person, what makes them tick kind of their attitude, their outlook on things, and then tailoring their approach to get the most out of them. And Case was the first person that I had been around for an extended period of time that really opened my eyes because he was so good at it. That story about Kyle, I think, is pretty famous amongst all the people that were there. Case is unbelievable at pushing you, 
more than you think you can do in pushing you mentally and physically and emotionally. He'll push you to that ledge. I think that's what kind of Kyle talked about is, you know, he'll push you right to that ledge, but he'll never let you go over the ledge. And I think that is something that is so powerful and is something that makes, has made him and continues to make him such a great coach and person and, and leader of uh, society is that he'll push you as far as much as he can. But as soon as you're about to go too far, he knows how to rein you back in. And you're exactly right. That, that tailored approach to each individual, I think, gets the most out of them. Uh, and when you combine that same process across a full team of 35, 40 guys, and you got everyone rowing in the right, the same direction, then, you know, you, you, you get great results like he's gotten. Did you ever get close to the ledge yourself? Absolutely. I think everyone did. Uh, you know, maybe outside of uh, guys like Nick Madrigal, uh, <laughs> you know, who are just so, so special, um, not only as players, but as people. I think everyone that went through, has gone through the program, uh, with cases, the head coach has has experienced that. You know, for me, I think it was a lot about just being uh, more confident in myself. You know, after my freshman year, I, I remember there was a story um, my freshman year where, you know, obviously coming in as a freshman, I had high expectations, uh, struggled hitting quite a bit, um, got thrown into the lineup. I think halfway through the year when Trevor Morrison got hurt um, and Caleb Hamilton switched over to shortstop and. I was playing third base every day, hitting probably like a buck seventy or whatever. And it was a Sunday day game before USC maybe. And KJ Harrison was, you know, best hitter on the team that year. He was hitting all the home runs as a freshman and whatnot. But Case called me into the coach's office before the game on Sunday and just said something along the line. You know, we watched some video and whatnot. And he paused the video and just looked at me and said, you know, if I had to ask you something right now, who's the best hitter on the team? What would your answer be? And I mean, I immediately said KJ because he had, you know, 10 home runs at the time or whatever, was leading the team in an average and hits. And he kind of, Case kind of nodded his head and listened and whatnot. And then he just said, well, like, why wouldn't you say yourself? And that's when like the light bulb went off for me is like, if you don't approach not only an at bat or a game or a season, but also just life, like if you don't approach it, with the confidence that you're the best at whatever you're doing, then you're not going to be as successful as you can be. Um, and that's something I've kind of carried throughout my life ever since that point, just because that was such a powerful uh, light bulb or conversation. I mean, it was a five minute conversation, right? It was like, I, I don't even, he probably doesn't even remember it. But for me, that was just something that I'll remember for the rest of my life because it's something that is so applicable to everyday life. Yeah. That's that's the sort of coaching that that really gets players to realize things about themselves they don't know. So yeah, that's a that's a compelling anecdote. Um, let's move on to your senior year. You got drafted, well, th by the end three times, twice by the Pirates. Thirty uh, ninth round coming out of high school again. Thirty ninth round your junior year. You stayed for your senior year. It ended up improving your draft stock by 29 rounds, came up in the 10th round after your senior year. Your numbers look pretty similar, your junior and senior season. Your batting average went from 301 to 305. Your on-base and slugging percentage both went up five points, so almost identical. The biggest difference, honestly, was hit by pitch. You went from 2 to 12 senior year. <laughs> that was the biggest jump. But Despite all that, you know, the pro teams really loved you, and the Pirates jumped up 29 rounds higher to get you in the 10th round. Looking back on it, how good of a decision was it to stay for your senior season in 2018? Right. 
I mean, it was a no brainer for me. And, you know, I've told people this before, even if we don't win uh, the national championship, like we did in 2018, I still to this day would say that it was, you know, the best decision I could have made. Um, It was obviously, I went back and forth for, you know, multiple days after we got back from Omaha in 2017, after the draft, just trying to wrap my brain around what I wanted to do, you know, and and talks with my parents and family and friends and, and obviously coach Casey and, you know, the other coaches that were there, even some players like Jake Rodriguez, um, who had, you know, left after their junior year. Um, and, and Jake was, you know, op- I hope he's okay with me telling him, you know, telling this, but he was open with me and said, dude, if I could go back, I would make the decision to return for my senior year. Um, so, you know, not only was it, I knew that that's what I wanted to do, but it just made it so much easier to have so many great people around me uh, giving their advice um, and, you know, really wanting uh, what was best in the long run for me. So to answer your question, you know, obviously we went, went in 2018. So I would say uh, it was a uh, pretty, pretty good decision. Yeah. Speaking of people who could very well have not been on the team in 2018, Kyle Novak should have been a senior in 2017, if I remember correctly. And then I think it was a knee injury and basically spent the whole year out and redshirted and got a year in 2018 that he wasn't expecting to get. What do you remember about his story, how he spent 2017 waiting in the wings and came back for 2018? Yeah, that was, uh, I actually was living with him that year. So that was, that was tough. You know, he, 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 uh, he's such an infectious person, his personality and, and the type of character that he has. Um, you know, he's someone you always want to be around on a daily basis. So, uh, you know, he did as much as he could, obviously being, you know, being around the team, you know, at practice when we were at home, he was, you know, around the, the, the games and whatnot. But um, I know that was hard on him and, and it was hard on us too, because we all wanted him around. And, you know, when we're on the road, he obviously wasn't able to be there with us. And living with him, you know, he, there were times where he was just like, dude, like, you know, I don't, don't know how I'm going to heal or, you know, he was trying to decide between surgery and PRP injections and whatnot. And that was tough. So that's just a testament to the, the person that he is too, that, to stay positive through that. And, you know, obviously come back the next year and, and make such a, such a big impact on our team, be a leader for us in 2018. Right. So let's jump to the 2018 College World Series. You were left on base twice in game one. It was kind of an odd game, a few weird moments. You didn't quite get the offense to all come together. How frustrated were you after game one and you're down 1-0 in that series? Yeah, definitely frustrated because, you know, we played like crap, way too many airs to win the game. We said we left guys on base. But after that game that we lost where, you know, we were all frustrated and kind of borderline shocked, just like, wow, you know, what just happened? We weren't worried about, oh, you know, we're only one loss away. That was never a thought for any of us. It was never a conversation with any of us. But after that game, Tyler Graham was talking to me and I think Kyle and and some other guys. He's like, do you guys realize that you played arguably your worst game of the year against one of the top eight teams in the country? you guys were still like in that game so he goes that just goes to show if you guys play like you're capable of and limit those uh mistakes then you can easily just run away with this whole thing again like the 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 support that we had around our team from players and coaches and fans and and parents and all these people uh you get stories like that that he was a guy who was a part of the 
the uh, 06 team that did the exact same thing as us and lost that first game and then came back. So for him to share that story with us uh, at that time just kind of set everything else up uh, for the next couple of weeks. So you come back game two and are trailing most of that game, at least the latter half of it, ever since the bottom of the fifth inning. You get to the ninth and Caden's at the plate for the at-bat that anyone who watched the game will likely not forget for a long time or never. I, I timed it when I was watching it back recently, and it, that foul ball he hit hung in the air for six and a half seconds, according, according to my stopwatch, 6.5 seconds until it seemed the season was over and you were going to lose, series done, Arkansas wins the national championship. How long did six and a half seconds seem to you? Yeah, uh, it was different for me in the dugout because I just kind of down, didn't have a great view of it. I wasn't up on the, the top rope, but just knowing how much foul territory there is in that stadium is very different than especially Goff, but a lot of other college baseball stadiums too, when they're built on campuses, they, you know, they don't have a lot of space in the foul territory. And TD Ameritrade is huge when it comes to foul territory. So, you know, it was definitely a play that I think anyone would tell you that, that it should have been caught. But at the same time, it's, it's not an easy play. It's dark. You know, those balls can get, you know, with the wind and whatever else. But uh, when that ball went up, that was, you know, in my thought, and I'm sure it was everyone else's thought, is like, oh, man, that's a game right there. And then when, it, when, when you see it bounce and go up, it was almost like, oh, my God, they didn't catch it. Like, and I think that's the reaction, the shared reaction that everyone who was watching the game had. Uh, it was just like, oh, my God, that, that, that should have been caught. It was, it was a crazy moment. So you stay alive. He gets the single, Trevor's dinger, and all of a sudden uh, you take the lead go to the bottom of the ninth inning. I think it was at that point where there's a whole bunch of defensive switches. I think it was then when you switched to first base for the bottom of the ninth inning of game two. Tell me your perspective of Jake Mulholland's nab of a sharp grounder and he throws to Nick. Yeah, yeah, that was, uh, I was holding the guy on obviously at first. When that, that ball was hit well. Uh, you know, you go back and watch the video and that ball was hit really well. Jake just happened to kind of stab it. Watching it back, the way he stabbed it, he was kind of like, oh, my God, I got it. And I, and I do think knowing how good Nick and Caden were, I'm sure they would have miraculously turned it themselves. But, uh, you know, when Jake secured it and made the throw to Nick, came across to me, that was, it, you know, it happened so fast because it was hit so well. Um, but it was just like, all right, like like I said, that one's out of the way. And, you know, we're, we're ready for game three. And there was no doubt that we were going to uh, find a way to win that, that game the next day. So that double play ends game two. You head to game three. The series technically tied, but like you said, it didn't feel tied in terms of your confidence level. To the first inning of game three, Trevor singles on a hit and run. So Caden turns and gets all the way to third base, only one out. So there's runners on the corners. Adley singles Caden home. It's already one to zero, and you're leading in game three with one out in the first inning. You're about to step on the field because you're on deck. Tyler Malone would have been the next hitter. And Isaiah Campbell already gets a mound visit. And this is the first inning. What were you thinking that early when he's already getting talked to from his coaches? You've already got a run on the board, one out in the first inning of game three. Yeah, you know, that just continued the momentum that we had the night before. Anytime you can jump on an opponent like that that had kind of the momentum on the opposite side against them, you know, we were able to kind of keep that pressure on them. You know, who's, who's to say if that game doesn't, you know, if we don't score there in the first and gets into the fourth, fifth, sixth, 
there's a chance that they, you know, could have got back some of that momentum. But obviously, you know, Trevor and Adley, two of the best hitters you could have in those situations, uh, got us ahead early. And I think at that point in time, you know, the, the coaches from both sides, uh, it was all arms on deck. You know, all, all, all guys needed to be ready. There's no time to kind of wait around and see if a guy has it that day. Um, and when we jumped out to an early lead, you know, obviously their coaches wanted to go. Uh, talk to Isaiah Campbell. Like I said, that just continued the momentum that we carried over from the night before. So in that at bat, after Tyler grounded out, you ripped a ground ball down third base. Casey Martin actually fields it in foul territory after it had gone past the bag. His throw draws Jared Gates off first. You're safe. Larnick scores. You get the RBI. It's two to zero at that point. Maybe should have been ruled a single on your hit down the line, but eh, it may be water under the bridge. But did you feel you'd reach safely when that ball came off your bat down the third baseline? No, I mean, I knew I didn't hit it well. Like, it was just kind of a chopper. He's obviously a great player, and, you know, he's playing shortstop for him now. But, uh, you know, playing third, he made a good play on it. Obviously, an extremely tough play. If he happened to have made the throw online, I probably am out, just judging off the, the camera angle. But, yeah, he happened to, you know, pull, pull it a little bit and, and throw it a little up the line. Guy Gates had to come off. And, and I beat it out for that run, which, like I said, just, you know, like when you can jump on a team – early in a, in a big game like that um, it can kind of take more momentum as well as kind of take hope away from them um, which is obviously what you want to do a couple last questions on game three when you were watching Kevin Abel pitch inning after inning after inning and you're standing on third base just a few feet away from him do some amazing work throughout game three what was your perspective as you're you're seeing him pitch after pitch and seem not to get that tired and mowing guys down. What were you seeing through the fourth, the fifth, the sixth, the seventh, all the way through the ninth inning? Yeah. I mean, it was pretty obvious right away that he had his, uh, you know, off speed working and we all knew from the second that he came on campus in the fall that year that he had really, really special stuff. His changeup, his curveball are both plus pitches for, for him, and I'm sure he'll be the first one to tell you. It was just about throwing strikes, getting ahead, and then being able to use those weapons of his. And right off the bat, um, you know, he was doing that. He had been great in the World Series uh, and regionals and Super Regionals up to that point. And, you know, the first couple innings, it was like, uh-oh, like, they're in trouble because he's throwing his fastball first strike. Uh, the changeup's obviously working, and he's got the curveball going with uh, – I mean, he made some of those guys look silly during that game. Guys ducking out of the way of curveballs, flailing over changeups. That was, I think, the definition of when, when you hear people say they were in the zone. Uh, he was definitely in the zone that game. And uh, I don't think anyone expected him to pitch as long as he did. I think I've seen stuff where Case said, yeah, we wanted to get, you know, two or three innings out of him. But there was no way that he was going to let anyone take him out of that game, especially as he continued to get one guy after the other. You might have it. I'm sure he set down, you know, however many consecutive in a row it was. It was, uh, it was spectacular. It, uh, pretty pretty easy day in the field for all of us, but it's uh, fun to be right there and, and get a witness uh, a pitching performance like that. I think it was only in the third inning when there was already activity in the bullpen. I think Grant Gambrell and maybe Dylan Pierce were already throwing, which makes it that crazier that six innings later he's still in and, and finished the game. So let me give you a let me give you a pop quiz. Who scored the final run of the 2018 NCAA baseball season? I believe it was me on a Zach Taylor single, right? Single, yes, right? well done. Let me, let me, uh, I think I can share my screen. I want to watch it with you for a second. If you can see that, does that pop up yep. there? Yeah. Okay, I'm going to hit play. 
uh, he, he takes a couple pitches. I think it's on the two one where he displays it, uh, into the outfield. You're already up four to zero and you're standing on third. Did you feel pretty confident the game was over at this point? Yeah. I mean, the way, like we just talked about the way Kevin was pitching, I think we would have been, uh, you know, totally fine with just one run, but, um, you know, obviously in, in a big game like that, you know, against a great team like that, every run feels like, feels like a hundred, especially at that point in the game. So, uh, you know, Zach, you know, people, people give, uh, you know, obviously rightfully so they give Caden and, uh, Caden and Trevor a lot of, uh, credit for the, the, the game two performance, but, you know, it's very easy to overlook Zach Taylor's at bat there in that same game in the ninth inning that, you know, he was the, the first guy to, to draw the walk and, and get that whole thing started. Um, and, and, you know, that's just, that's just the amount of, the, the the guys that we had on that team, it was just, that's how special of a team it was. You got guys like him and, you know, setting guys like uh, Caden and uh, Trevor up for, for success. You just watch yourself cross home and it's five to zero. Looked like you were pretty fired up there. What was your emotional response? What were you saying there in the dugout? Uh, probably just get three more outs. I mean, that was, you can see us all right there. We were all, uh, I think chomping the bit to get those last three outs, even though we, we all know those are the, the toughest three to get with that lead and Kevin on the mound, we were ready to, ready to get those three outs and, and get on with the celebration. So that gets you to five to zero. It's a fun little moment. You were the last player of the college baseball season to score and uh, you get to go to the ninth inning and you win game three. Tell me about the celebration, what you remember of the locker room, the dog pile, and right after the final pitch to the locker room and all that aftermath. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it's something I've been thinking about ever since, you know, all the way back in middle school when we, when I watched those other Oregon state teams win, um, I was like, man, that would be, you know, very special to, to be a part of a team like that and continue, you know, the, the program's history, the rich history that the program has. It was just so special to be able to spend it with those guys because every guy on that team, especially 2017 and 18, but even the years before that, you know, every single player that was in the program before had kind of laid the, the foundation and the groundwork to get to that point. You know, Scotty Church was a guy who actually, you know, transferred away from Oregon State, but he drove from Lubbock, Texas, and stayed at the hotel, you know, to, to come watch the 2018 finals. And that's just, that, that's what that program is. That's what the program of Warrior State Baseball is. It's a family. Um, and to be able to, to share that incredible experience with, uh, you know, 40 and then including coaches, 50 of the most special people that you'll ever come into contact with in your life is, it, it's unlike anything else uh, that, that I'm sure a lot of people, you know, that I'll get to experience in my life. There was one other cool storyline where there was a, a kid who was from Arizona, a big Beaver fan. I think his name is Drew Bodigheimer, yeah. heart transplant and fought through a lot, but was just the biggest Beaver fan. And he was there in Omaha. What interactions do you remember with him during the series or after game three? Yeah. So I remember back in, oh man, probably my sophomore year. So 2016, Logan Ice was kind of the first person to bring Drew and his family around the team. Um, and, you know, it, we all just obviously such an inspiration, you know, himself and what he's been through and what his family's been through. And, you know, his parents were big Beaver fans and whatnot. So it was awesome to, to see him uh, not only after uh, we won, but, you know, they were there the year before. They were there in Arizona when we started our season in 2017 and they were there for all that. And then, 
in 2018, they were there from the beginning to the end. And like I mentioned multiple times before, it's just that's how special of a group of people uh, around that pro around the program. And you know, it takes a village uh, to do great things. And you know, they they were definitely and, and Drew and his family are definitely a part of all that. Um, the last thing we'll we'll kind of finish with this in the conversation I had with Kyle Novak, one of the main lessons he learned coming away or maybe he already had it even going into the college world series is that he feels that people get it the wrong way that if you achieve success such as a college world series you know national championship that's not what leads to happiness it's actually backwards it's that you need to first have happiness to have something inspiring to want to help other people and that will then that'll lead to success rather than looking two successful events or accomplishments to make you happy. Right. What do you think of, of hearing that philosophy? Do you agree with it? And what's your own take? Yeah, you know, Kyle's really diving into a lot of that stuff. He's doing a lot of stuff coaching now and whatnot. So I always, I'm always testing him kind of, you know, from a mental, even not only baseball, but just life in general, that mental edge that you can get uh, in life. And, you know, Kyle, I think is going to do a lot of great things in that area that you just mentioned. For me, I think it's something I've really bought into in my life and seen the results of is the process. Everyone is going to have a different process. My process wasn't the same as Adley's. It wasn't the same as Trevor's. It wasn't the same as Kyle's. You know, there might be bits and pieces of it that are the same and you might be able to learn one thing from the other, but everyone's process, everyone's life is different. And ultimately, I think you have to enjoy that process and let the process be the reward because when I think about my time at Oregon State, obviously everyone asks about the uh, national championship. But honestly, that's not, I mean, it's a big point, but that's not the first thing that I think of when I think of my experience. It was all of the practices, all of the ups and downs from the year before, the losing to LSU two games. It was that whole process, the 6 a.m. weights the classes, the things we did off the field together, those things mean more in the long run that are a part of the process than the result of winning the national championship. And I think that that's kind of applicable to life. You know, a lot of people will, will set their goals. I want to do this. I want to do that. It could be, a, you know, long-term 10, 20, 15, 50 years, whatever it is. But if you don't take the process for what it is and enjoy that process from a day-to-day -day perspective, then you're never going to reach those goals. Um, and I think, I don't know how that relates to, you know, what Kyle was talking about. Definitely, you know, if you're not happy with what you're doing on a day-to-day -day basis, then you're never going to reach those big goals. But for me, that's something that, uh, you know, I, I just continue to kind of see how it plays out in, uh, you know, not only baseball, but, but in life. Yeah, I think both your and Kyle's takeaways are complimentary, you know, two different sides, two different lessons you learn, not contradictory, just two different things. And his relating more to happiness and yours relating more to appreciating going through the, the parts leading up to the conclusion. And I think they both are totally sensible, reasonable and, and compelling uh, life lessons that you've learned. And if you're going to win a national championship, you hope that some of those things would resonate and, and you'd be a, a different person, a better person at the end of the day. So it's fun hearing your story and how the last few years have gone and moving on from professional baseball to where you're at. So I really appreciate your time, Michael, and you joining me on the podcast. It's so fun to, to talk with you and all the players. So thanks for coming on.
Yeah, of course. Thanks for having me. I'm uh, happy to help in any way I can, and I uh, look forward to not only listening to this, but the, the big project you're working on, as well as uh, all the other guys. I'm sure, I'm sure they'll have some fun stories that uh, you know are always fun to hear. Man, so fun to catch up with Michael Gretler and one of the guys who has already moved on from baseball, especially a tenth round pick. You know, a lot of these guys will be playing baseball for years. Trevor Larnick and Adley Rutschman and Nick Madrigal and Caden Grenier and and more have a long career ahead of them, perhaps. But Michael Gretler going ahead and moving on from baseball and hopefully building a successful career afterwards. I love his takeaway about enjoying the process and remembering that even more than the national championship. It's not what he necessarily thinks about the most, but the journey to get to Omaha and all the hard work and memories of competing with his teammates leading up to that point. I was talking with a friend recently who worked so hard and trained for a marathon, and after finally competing it a while back, now when he thinks about that stretch, it's not the marathon itself and that day that he thinks about most, but all the training and running and preparation for the marathon that he thinks of. After all, that was all the hard work. And, well, the marathon was hard in and of itself, sure, but it was just the completion of it all, and it was really the process that he remembered most. And perhaps the 2018 team was a marathon of its own, and Omaha was the finish line, but it was far from the only memories that these players will take away from that season. Like he said, there is a larger project that this podcast will be used for. All those memories of the College World Series and all these interviews from the players on that team will be part of a documentary that I'm producing that will come out later this year with all these interviews chopped up throughout narrating the game and using radio highlights, hopefully, and Uh, bringing you back and an inner look at that 2018 College World Series with the inside storylines and all the fun pieces of Omaha two years ago. So stay tuned for that one and more interviews with these players from that 2018 team. Michael will not be the last one that I'll have on this podcast and more athletes from other sports as well. Thanks for tuning in to the Beaver Tales podcast. I'm Josh Warden. Don't forget to check out kingdomhome.org. And as always, go Beavers.